The most important thing is to make sure sustainability is inextricably linked to the business results. Purpose-led doesn't mean you're profit-deprived. We want to be able to do both. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness these winds of change. I'm Anders Sorman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for The Second Renaissance. In today's episode of The Second Renaissance, I sit down with Nikki Sparshot to decode Unilever's sustainability journey and T2's journey to becoming a certified B Corp. We uncover the basis for the commercial, social and planetary success of Unilever's innovation formula and how purposeful brands prosper. I love how generously Nikki shares her leadership and sustainability insights and how our viewers and listeners can adapt this to fast track their own transformation journeys towards a more sustainable and prosperous future. So here is a quick word on pedigree. Nikki is a C-suite executive and board member with 25 years of experience in leading within global corporations. She's developed and built brands, grown businesses, and created and nurtured capability in systems and people. She is recognized for her depth and breadth of expertise across FMCG, retail, luxury, and e-commerce. Her experience spans food, beverages, healthcare, and personal care. She has a long track record of successful delivery in Unilever, the Coca-Cola Company, P&G, and George Patterson Y&R. Nikki holds a Master's in International Business from the University of Technology, Sydney, and an Executive MBA in Change through INSEAD. This has been supported by significant global business and management experience across Australia, New Zealand, UK, Europe, USA, and the highly diverse markets of Asia. Nikki is also a board director of the World Wildlife Fund Australia and Global Sisters. She is a passionate advocate that businesses today must drive sustainable agendas that positively impact both people and planet. I trust you will enjoy today's Second Renaissance episode as much as I did. Nikki Sparshot, welcome to the Second Renaissance. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, I'm trying to cast my mind back, which is always a challenge in these uh, pandemic or slightly post-pandemic times. Uh, I think we met at the Australian Food and Grocery Council's conference on a panel on sustainability in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. We did, indeed. Absolutely. And how much has changed even since then? Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about the fact that, you know, 10 years worth of digital transformation has been compressed into the last two years. And certainly that means a lot in terms of both of us recording today remotely from wherever we happen to be. Um, But of course, also, it feels like the agenda has moved favorably uh, in favor of one of the topics that you're really, really passionate as a leader, which is, of course, sustainability at, uh, at Unilever. Um, 
I think Unilever's been in many ways a sort of a, a first mover in this space before it became, in a sense, trendy and, and really mainstream. Um, I see you guys as a leader in sustainable commerce and, and certainly regenerative commerce. I'm just curious a little bit in the origin stories of Unilever and, and why you find yourself in this leadership position today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for sure, the last few years has um, brought the future forward for so many reasons. And I think it's great that there is so much momentum in this space around sustainability and purpose. Um, maybe for those who aren't so familiar with Unilever, we're uh, one of the world's biggest fast-moving consumer goods companies. So you're probably more familiar with our brands, things like Dove and Magnum and Rexona and Omo and many of the other things you probably find in your fridge or your pantry um, but the origination of where sustainability became so important I guess to Unilever it actually can be found in the roots of the business so over a hundred years ago with some of our forefounders so we had um, Lord Lever who was a real champion of sustainability by wanting to democratize hygiene by introducing a bar of sunlight soap in Victorian England uh, he didn't feel that it should be left to just the elite to have access to that. You know, similarly, you have uh, Sir Thomas Lipton, who wanted to give access to a cup of tea to everybody, again, not just the noble. Um, and this idea of sort of having beautiful brands that had a positive impact on people was very much part of the Unilever DNA. But if I bring it forward more closely to today, about 12 years ago, our um, CEO at the time, uh, Paul Polman, was very passionate about wanting to, I guess, create or reimagine a new form of capitalism, one where you put um, sustainability and purpose at the heart of doing business. So how can you double your business but halve your environmental impact and, and positively impact the lives of billions of people in the process? And he kind of coined the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, uh, which has been, you know, taken up and, and uh, I guess, spearheaded even further under the leadership of, of Alan Job more recently, where we made the decision not to have a sustainability plan on one end and a business plan on the other, but how do you create one business plan that says actually the way we do business, our value chain end to end, needs to have sustainability principles embedded in it. Um, and the way that shows up at Unilever is in many different ways. It's about how you have a regenerative impact on the planet by the way we produce our products. And that's everything from sustainable sourcing to the way we manufacture to our carbon footprint um, through to the, our use of plastics, the way we manage waste. But it can also show up in our diversity, equity and inclusion agenda and how we make sure that we're creating an environment for people of all walks of life to be able to positively impact um, the agenda that we have. So quite a remarkable story uh, from a big multinational company. And yet, I think while we may have had a head start on others, there's still so much more to do. So I'm, I'm fascinated by, the, by this concept of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, an embryonic vision a few years ago. How have you managed to make that part of the Unilever culture and how do you have it really be, in a sense, executed upon in terms of some of these behaviours uh, that you've just described and some of these strategies and tactics that you, know, you guys execute on an everyday basis? 
Yeah, you know, that it's the operationalization of it, right, that converts it from sort of intent into action that actually has impact in the market. And the most important thing is to make sure that the agenda that you have on sustainability is inextricably linked to the business results. Because what we've got to remember is that we are a business first and foremost, right? So this isn't that you're Purpose-led doesn't mean you're profit-deprived. You know, we, we want to be able to do both incredibly well, deliver profitable growth and equally do it in a way that has a regenerative impact on the planet and a really positive impact on the communities that we serve. So we've got a couple of principles at Unilever and they're really guiding principles for us. And the first one is that brands with purpose grow. And you can see that play out Um you know, the, the, the market has moved quite fast on this where consumers are now saying, I want to know how the brands that I love have been produced. And that curiosity has moved from just, I'm curious and I feel good when I have a brand that happens to do that to actually, I'm now going to buy brands that have been designed with that in mind. So, you know, brands with purpose grow. Then we talk about companies with purpose last you know this is a business that has been around for many many years and has always been built on these tenants albeit massively accelerated over the last um, decade or more to I guess be pioneers in this space and then the last tenant is that people with purpose thrive and I think that's probably the most important one, right? How many of us today want to feel like we get up in the morning and the time that we're spending at work or in our you know, professional endeavours are somehow having a positive impact. Um, and I know for a long time, I kind of thought at some point I'm going to get out of corporate life and I'm going to go work for an NGO so I can make a difference. And then actually you realise you can have such an incredible impact being within an organisation that allows you to have that impact and I'm not alone in that. You know, we're finding we're able to attract and retain talent because more and more people, um, you know, from uh, Gen Z right through are looking to be part of organisations where small actions can contribute to a big difference. And I think that's helped to really embed uh, or close the say-do gap for Unilever so that the commitments that we make can actually be operationalised and landed by our teams and create the impact that ultimately we are hoping to have on that triple bottom line. Mm. Because I've been reading and, and reflecting on a, on a book called Net Positive by my good friend Andrew Winston, who's been on the, on the Second Renaissance show, and, and of course your, your former colleague Paul Polman. And in that book, Net Positive, they do talk about Unilever and and several case studies of of innovation where it's you know two times the growth while treading more lightly on the planet, uh, which sort of sounds like a dichotomy or kind of like an ironic uh, twist of turn of events in a sense. How do you do both at the same time as a sort of value innovation? Um, but they also talk about Unilever as almost like an NGO that's highly profitable as a, as a company. Uh, and I think that's an, sort of an apt description. And, and that, when you're talking about attracting talent, brings me to this question about how you as a CEO of Unilever in Australia and, and, and New Zealand, how you were attracted uh, by the brand. You've sort of alluded to it already, but what is it inside of you that you feel really strongly about is this sort of brand alignment that you have as a conscious CEO of, of the next generation and the future? At the most 
basic point. You know, I spend a lot of time at work, as do we all. More time at work, probably, than we do with family and friends. So I want to know that the time I'm investing is time well spent. And I don't think I'm alone on that. So what attracted me to Unilever? You know, when I look at, um, when I make decisions about my own career or when I give advice to people, I say to them one thing, what is the impact that you want to make? But secondly, are you part of an organisation that's going to allow you to make it? Because I think quite often people know what they want to do, where they think that they can kind of be their own personal thriving force for good. But sometimes they work in organisations that actually aren't fully set up, either from a lens of conviction or a lens of capability, sometimes both, to be able to actually make it happen. What I love about being part of the Unilever organisation, sort of perfect in its imperfections um, at times as well, is that I am part of a tribe of business people from all walks of life, all around the globe, different functions, who, who absolutely believe that you can have the end and that the duality of delivering profitable growth, which as a business we must do um, and give shareholders their return, can be done in equal measure with positive impact on planet and people. Um, and that shows up in the sometimes very difficult challenges that we need to confront because it's easy to say that this is something you're passionate about, but actually making it happen, that's pretty hard. So you have to sort of lean into the fear of it because quite often you're, you're treading a path not yet trodden. You know, we don't always have the answers for how we're going to get there, but we want to set the bar high. And I would always set the bar high and fall short of a high bar, then set a low target and high five myself for achieving it. Um, you know, I, I kind of think that is, you need a kind of cultural environment that is going to allow for that to take place. That that was hugely appealing to me um, at Unilever and to be surrounded by not just people within our own organisation, but to be part of an ecosystem of partners, retailers, suppliers, um, you know, government um, infrastructure, because you actually do need a coalition of the willing, able and passionate, and, and I might add to that fearless, to be able to, to lean in and get some of, these wicked problems that the world's facing address you know we've just gone through this COVID pandemic and it's not yet over but we know that climate change and social inequality and political fault lines these also threaten our shared stability so it's quicker to make a dollar than it is to make a difference at times but actually it's eminently more exciting to be able to do both and of course, uh, a whole new generation also wants this, whether it's through the, the great resignation or people making a sea change, a tree change and, and, and changing fundamentally what they do for a living during the pandemic. I do see that our talent today is, is massively veering towards and making a huge um, pioneering effort to, to join organizations that are putting, you know, purpose ahead of, of profit, but finding that purpose is leading to profit. Um, I mean, one of the trends that we're observing at the moment is, is the rise of what's known as the conscious or the conscientious consumer who wants to know where their food comes from. They want to know that 
the story behind you know their beauty product is one that's digitally traceable and you know they're they're opting for b corps uh as a you know as a brand of brand stamp of authentication and verification independence uh lee verified in terms of you know performing well on esg metrics Um, what do the unilever numbers tell us about this concept of uh, brands with purpose growing and uh, how do you see the role of the conscious consumer in in the uh, landscape of the future for Unilever? You know there was a time and let's call it maybe three or four years ago where if you talk to to the people that we serve let's call it a consumer I hate that word but I think people understand what I mean when I say that um they would say, of course, I would like to buy a brand that is socially conscious, that is environmentally conscious, um, that I can understand easily the sort of provenance or the sustainability story. But they wouldn't necessarily pay for it. You know, if confronted at the point of sale, then not always that choice would be made. That has actually shifted. We're really seeing not only um, desire for products that are sustainably and purposefully Uh, designed and manufactured and distributed, I should say, but also starting to make very significant brand choices. And we see it within our own portfolio. The brands that we have that are stronger on sustainability and, you know, social agendas and very active in that space perform more strongly than those that don't. Because even within our own portfolio, we have some brands that do it better than others. Um, And we see that play out in the market share of those brands. We see it in the level of brand saliency. We see it in the brand advocacy. Uh, So we're definitely seeing it play out. And then, of course, there are other benefits. So not only is it about brand love. I think today people want not only a product that they can buy, but a brand idea that they can buy into. They want to feel that the small choices that they make every day are actually contributing to that amazing ripple effect of change um, that we need. So you see it from a consumer lens, you see it from um, an investor lens. You know, money talks, right? We're starting to see where flows of capital are being directed to to brands and businesses that can also show this imperative. Um, And then, of course, you see it in sort of the partnerships that you can build with retailers and with suppliers to help make change in this space Um, happen faster than ever before so it's almost like there's this beautiful universe conspiring together right now a little bit out of necessity like necessity is the mother of invention and you know some of the the things that we saw during COVID I think helped people understand that we've got to get on top of some of this stuff that is not um, not serving humanity well and uh, otherwise it's going to be even more problematic down the track Uh, but some of it I think is just coming out of a you know, a sheer recognition that there are ways to get beautiful products that you love, but also in a way that does, doesn't does leave a negative impact on the planet, quite, op- you know, quite the opposite, actually, it has a very regenerative impact. Yeah, and then when you look at, evidently, we're in a climate today where people are talking globally about, you know, the implications of, of inflation, uh, volatile stock markets, we're seeing the rise of fuel, uh, and food being on the increase, given uh, the situation in Eastern Europe at the moment, as we record this, and then at the same time, at the moment, people 
somehow are starting to see that there are options. There are options to, to, to maybe source food, you know, more locally, or there are options to use renewable energy. There are now EV adoption curves that are really, really heartening, even in Australia, which has been a laggard in this space. And in countries like Norway, Tesla has a 16% market share of the entire automotive market. 65% of vehicles last year sold were, were electric. So people are finding alternatives and alternatives that are sustainable. And I think um, the old vision of sort of, you know, let's get this done by 2050s increasingly moving towards this sort of 2030 uh, perspective. At least this is what, what, what we're observing at the moment. And I guess that the point here is that when it comes to sustainability, people used to always think it costs more. And certainly sometimes we do need to pay the true cost uh, of items. But have you seen examples within the Unilever family or in other businesses where you're actually seeing that the sustainable option can be the more affordable option as well, or that it leads to this type of value innovation where it's more value for for the customer, but at a lower cost? Yeah, so, you know, sustainability shouldn't cost the earth, pun intended, right? It it actually should be. We we really work hard to, to try to democratize access to sustainable products. It shouldn't just be at the premium end of the market, which is where quite often we see a lot of the innovation taking place. So it is about democratizing that access. Um, you know, like I think about some of the things that we've just done in, in our own backyard, our, our move to renewable electricity um, many years ago now, but that not only was good for the planet, but it was a more cost-effective solution for us. It helped us manage a bit of the volatility of, of energy prices, gave us a certain degree of certainty, um, you know, also reduced carbon. It was, you know, it, it has multiple effects. Um, we've spent a lot of time having a look at our plastics footprint. You know, as a fast-moving consumer goods manufacturer, we absolutely believe that plastic has a role in society, but just not on the planet. So, you know, we're all about either no plastic, so re-engineering business models that might allow us to do that. So can you turn up to Coles in Mooney Pond and refill your OMO uh, liquid detergent rather than having to buy a new packaging every time? Or can you have better plastic, actually? So moving from virgin plastics, and we've set a commitment to reduce our virgin plastics by 2025 um, by at least 50%, and we're on track to doing that, and using post-consumer recycled plastics. Now, the reality is that can be more expensive. And so you are having to make choices. And the, the, the advice that I, I take for myself and the business that I lead, but I would also you know give to others is, You've got to get super smart at working out where the non-value cost, value-added costs are in your business, so that you can feel confident making the investments in some on costs in the short term. But they will absolutely come down as the market moves, um, sort of on mass. We could argue that the position that Unilever has in sustainability, in purpose-led brands, could be a competitive advantage. But the honest reality is we don't want it to be we want to sort of lift the floor and raise the ceiling for everybody um, so that it becomes the way the industry operates versus it being a sort of uh, an advantage for for a handful and you certainly feel that you know across the board the industry is certainly moving in in that space 
Yeah, and I've, I've sometimes heard it said uh, about Tesla as, of course, a pioneer in the electric vehicle space that one of the greatest contributions of Tesla is not necessarily that you see Teslas uh, around the planet today, although that is evident. And uh, But the point being that they have encouraged every other major car manufacturer to move towards really doubling down on electric vehicles and making some really, really firm commitments on you know replacing internal combustion engines, for example, uh, to a greater or smaller effect over the next few years. So uh, we've even heard, you know, Elon Musk sort of saying, hey, we're not necessarily just an automotive company. We're, you know, we're a company that's really driving um, electric and, and the electrification of, of the planet in a sense, which, which many people see as the solution to some of these, you know, sustainability and climate change woes. They are a company that are quite focused on making sure that their entire supply chain is now also increasingly squeaky clean. I don't think they're quite there yet. Um, But for the conscious consumer, there is this sense that the supply chain and the ecosystem of vendors for any organization is in many ways now the story that wins hearts and minds for the customer, the client and stakeholders what are you seeing in terms of your shifts in sourcing over the last few years how are you mindfully doing that are there any particular brands that we should be attuned to within the family uh, where you have made those shifts and how are you telling that story so you know in Australia we're really fortunate that we have a really strong manufacturing base locally. So, you know, over 75% of the brands in our portfolio in Australia and New Zealand are made in Australia. And to your point earlier on, one of the trends that we're absolutely seeing is is a rise in in Australian sourced and Australian made products. And I think because Australian made whether you're in the country or whether you're outside it does stand for high quality, safely made, um, consciously made. Uh, products and when we're definitely seeing that uh, you know when I think about our our continental brand for example which is our foods business or our foods brand in Australia um, you know about 85 percent of all the ingredients of, of all the products that we have in that portfolio and it's a sizable portfolio are um, in Australia are sourced in Australia and hundred percent of it is made here so we are we and we will continue to look at opportunities to onshore uh, products where it makes sense for us because it's definitely a trend that we're seeing in the marketplace but also with all the volatility that we're seeing I mean and I like to think about it's almost like the you can call it a third wave of COVID but I like to think of it a bit more like COVID was an earthquake um, in 2020, in 2021, you had some of the aftershocks associated with those earthquakes. But 2022, gosh, that's like rebuilding some of the devastation that you didn't fully appreciate. Um, but all of those sort of fault lines, and we're seeing it now. And then you throw in, you know, the war in Ukraine, which which I think for most people was 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 unforeseen, and the ripple effect that that has had. And and it is like a perfect storm in that regard. So. Um, yeah, to answer your point, we're very consciously making choices about sustainable sourcing of ingredients, um, sustainable sourcing of packaging, um, really ethical production uh, of the value chain end to end, 
partnerships with the right suppliers and maybe a point here is you know we have the privilege of working with so many different partners as we bring our products to market but we're very conscious about who we partner with as well so we have you know suppliers that are so um, passionate about the sustainability agenda as passionate as we are and in some areas even more progressed and they're awesome partners to do business with we have some that are very passionate about what, what our agenda is but don't necessarily have the capability or the capacity to do it but want to learn they're awesome to partner with as well because you know there's a real meeting of the minds there and with that you can make magic happen and then we have a very small proportion that have said we it's not our bag that's not necessarily how we're going to prioritise our resources, our infrastructure, our funding. And we've opted out. We've said, actually, well, then this is not the right partnership for us. So I think in this space, you also have to have a bit of conviction um, that, uh, you know, that plays out all the way through from intent to action. Yeah. Are there examples of where you've helped partners in that ecosystem transform their, their business models? And if so... You know what kind of support or, or, or ideas exchange have you have you experienced with with those partners? Yeah, so I mean, we work with some fabulous um, packaging suppliers in Australia, and um, you know this this desire to, to access post consumer recycled plastics and to be able to to do that in a way that creates a sort of circular economy. Because ideally, you want to be able to take. Um, you know, a bottle that's already been used in Australia, uh, collect it, move it through the waste um, infrastructure and then be able to use it again in a manufacturing. And it's it's not quite as perfect as that yet in Australia uh, because of the, you know, the different by-state um, waste programs and infrastructure that's in place. And we have to, you really do have to work um, quite closely with other companies to almost fill the gaps and create that flywheel. Um, when I was at T2, that was a, a fantastic example. We, you know, we decided we wanted to set a big, hairy, audacious goal of becoming a B corporation. And this, that was a, an amazing business, but wasn't necessarily born a B Corp. So all of a sudden we had thousands of tea products and hundreds of tea wares coming from many, many markets across the world. That was, you know, that, that was a really interesting exercise because we all had to hold hands and say, right, we're now going to have to sustainably certify every single ingredient we have. We're going to have to work with all of the different suppliers, which would have been, you know, upwards of 400 plus. We are going to have to work with many of these suppliers who are up for the task at hand, but also had never done this work for themselves. So we partnered together and that also gave them a competitive advantage because they were able to then sell their ingredients to other people that were using their ingredients as well, but now being able to say that they could show the transparency of, of where it was coming from. So look, I think in all of these things, there's got to be mutual. There's there's mutual benefit. Um, it goes back to the the end end. You know, you made a point earlier on about the great resignation. I, I have a, like a little personal theory on this. I don't think it's the great resignation. I think it's the great realization. I think people are doing their own sort of double click on what their own end end is. You know, do do I? I yes, I want to have a career that's fulfilling, but I also want to do it in a way that um, sustains me in my personal life. Yes, I want to be part of an organisation that delivers uh, profitable growth. Who doesn't want to be part of a winning organisation in that regard? 
but I want to know that um, the way that that profitable growth is being derived is something that I can be proud of. You know, I, that's what I think is happening as people take a moment to pause, reflect and think about the, um, you know, the, the next, uh, next part of their professional careers. And I think there's a sense that it's not about being less bad, about offsetting a few, you know, a few bits of carbon here and a few bits of carbon there, or it's actually regenerating every day, the planet, society, helping the ecosystem. The T2 journey I found fascinating, um, partly because my brother worked there when he was at university, but also to see that it's under great stewardship now. What would have been the, the key lessons of, of, of that journey and, and how do those lessons potentially scale to other brands within the portfolio as we, as we look to the future? Do you know, I, I remember raising it at, um, at a leadership team meeting at T2, you know, this idea of, hey, what about we um, set the bar really high and become a B Corp and, and just the you know, the silence was deafening in the room. Uh, And I think because it just felt so audacious. And at the same time, the level of sort of excitement at the possibility of that was an incredibly galvanising force within the organisation. And more importantly, uh, you know, aside from the sort of C-suite, I guess, what was more interesting and more remarkable to me was the change agents that sat in the organisation, sort of, you know, independent of hierarchy, but this incredible amount of distributed leadership that came to the fore when we went to the organisation and said, hey, this is what we want to do. We're not quite sure how we're going to do it. We definitely need to pull together people that can work on different work streams, who's up for it. And then out of um, the most surprising places people would volunteer, put up their hands, have remarkably interesting solutions. Um, so, you know, that that's, I think, the first learning is that setting a, a purpose like this, a North Star, can be incredibly motivating to galvanise an organisation, and particularly when times are tough, right? And, and I know that even the last two and a half years of COVID, um, in the Unilever business, you know, sort of having this North Star of being a thriving force for good, this idea that the more we grow, the more good we can do, um, I think helped actually through some of those more challenging, uh, darker days. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is around then that distributed leadership. I think you don't have to have all of the answers. I mean, I certainly don't have all of the answers. I very rarely am the one that has the answers actually, but I'm getting very good at asking questions. Um, uh, across the organisation and, and, and hopefully giving rise to those lateral solutions to be, you know, to be heard. Uh, and I think that's a really important one. And then the last one on the T2 sort of B Corp journey, I think, is just um, that there is enormous power and generosity in sharing your insights with other companies because you also get that right back um, and that knowledge or problem shared, problem halved, that helps us to create momentum faster. And I actually think there's a not only a good good lesson for any corporation, but maybe for society in that, just that sharing generously um, breeds a generosity that allows us to move faster and smarter. 
Mm. Well, I know the the ethos of the, the the B Corp movement, and we are we are on that journey as well as as an organisation. But the ethos is very much this sort of open sourced, open innovation mindset of please share your your lessons, your insights, you know the the ups and downs of, of the journey because it is it is a big undertaking. And uh, yeah, kudos and respect to you guys for 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 getting there. But of course, it's you know. It's not just about a destination, right? It's about how we're how we're reinventing business, but also, of course, um, the people we pass the baton to uh, as well, who might run these organisations and brands uh, in the future as well. It sounds like this is one of the you know a major achievement potentially. And sorry for putting words in your mouth here, but uh, that you might be quite proud of. Are there are there other innovations or achievements on the sustainability journey at, at Unilever here in Australia, New Zealand, or globally that you, you take particular pride in? You know, I'll just call out a few of the, the things that the team in particular have done that I'm very proud of, I guess. Um, there's obviously the sustainability space. We talk in, in ESG. We talk a lot about the S, right? But I, um, about the E, and I do want to talk a little bit about the S as well. But um, on the environmental front, I think the work that we've done on you know renewable electricity driving our um, 100% of our operations is is something to be proud of. And now we're really turning our attention to the manufacturing side of things and making sure that we can do that in an eminently more renewable way. Um, I think our shift uh, in plastics to you know significant reduction in virgin plastics and and more post-consumer recycled or even removal of plastics has been something that the team have worked incredibly hard on because what what we've got to remember with this you know this purpose and sustainability journey is that the product has to deliver first and foremost you can't have a great purpose and a crappy product right so you need to be able to do all of those things in harmony very very well and that takes a lot of of, of energy effort and, and some good technical smarts as well um we've look we've we've done a lot of work in the dei space um and and in particular uh, a couple of years ago now we really wanted to to develop a reconciliation action plan that was really fit for purpose for Unilever, um, credible, you know, something that we could truly um, deliver. But what I've learned through that process is just how much knowledge there is to be learned from First Nations people, history and culture, and how we can take that into our business actually to fast track um, much of the work that we want to do in the in the ESG space. So that's another area that I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, and look, a different angle, I guess, as well, is sort of the future of work. And it goes to your point about the fact that the next generation of leaders coming up through the ranks are looking for different things. And and I'm I'm proud of some of the initiatives that we've pioneered in the business to, to recognise the diversity of the way people work. So um, we've, uh, we have... 16 weeks parental leave, whether you're a, a mum or a dad, as long as you're a carer of a child, you can take that 16 weeks of leave and that's been game-changing. We've had more men take it up in the organisation over the last 
you know, 18 months than we have had women. And it's been just brilliant to be able to um, not only get that 50-50 gender diversity, which we have at Unilever, but to be able to see both men and women take up some amazing opportunity to be great parents or carers and also, um, you know, stellar professionals. And then we're pioneering the four, the four day week. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the experiment that we're running in uh, New Zealand. Uh, it's 15 months in. Um, we pay 100% of your salary to work 80% of the time, as long as you deliver 100% of sort of agreed productivity KPIs. And that's been remarkable. You know, the team have worked very hard to, uh, to see what non-value added work they can remove from the business to get the gift of the fifth day um, to be able to invest however they want it and the results uh, from financial results right through to engagement and cultural results have been um, better than they've ever been before so you know these are just a few things uh, and none of them without their challenges along the way there always is going to be challenges but uh, I'm proud for looking at the opportunity and testing and learning. I think they're, they're, they're great examples and uh, certainly as a young dad and we have an eight-month-old and a, and a five, nearly five-year-old at home, so I know what sleepless nights can do to, to both uh, mums and, and dads and, and the, you know, certainly the challenges of, of running businesses. So the, the 16, 16 weeks would be muchly appreciated. Uh, I'll have to go and negotiate with my boss uh, on that front, which sits here as well. Um, so I'm... Uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, the, the four, four day work week and, and some of these innovations, you know, they've been around in other companies, but oftentimes you hear about them in a sort of a, in a startup or in a Silicon Valley context. I am um, curious, where, where do you get your inspiration or, you know, your cross fertilizing ideas? Where do you get that from as a, as a certainly a sustainability strategist and innovator, secondly from a leadership perspective, but also perhaps from a perspective of of creating groundswell movements as well. You know, I'm I'm curious by nature, right? So I, I love, you know, I could people watch all day. You know, I love nothing better than to sort of observe people in action in their spaces, and whether that's a consumer in a store or whether that's. Uh, um, you know, our teams in our factories or in the field, you know, this this idea of just watching people where they are, I think can garner incredible insight. Um, look, my, my inspiration, if I just make it very, very personal to me, you know, I, I feel incredibly grateful to be part of an organisation like Unilever Globally that gives me a lot of um, uh, autonomy to do some really remarkable things locally. Uh, and to experiment and uh, sometimes to get it wrong, you know, fail, fail fast, learn from it and then move on to the next thing with much richer insight as a result and then share that learning within the organisation. That That's an, a, a remarkable thing. You know, I have the really good fortune of being associated with um, uh, a few other organisations that are close to my heart, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature and the incredible work that they do in the conservation space and, you know, to really ensure that the sort of biodiversity of, um, of Australia is, is preserved because that has such an important impact on, on climate action as well. Uh, or Global Sisters, which is a social enterprise that I'm involved in and uh, that is really looking at ensuring that 
every woman, no matter their background, can be financially independent and, and particularly women that are either unemployed, underemployed or uh, precariously employed. And it, working with some remarkable people across those varied organisations and then not to mention the opportunities to sit on forums where you just learn from other organisations, business leaders, um, school children. You know, I have two children of my own and I have no doubt that it'll be that generation that truly creates incredible momentum and impact on some of the things that the world needs the most of because they just can't understand why there is so much debate in some of these areas. So look, for me, it's it's not about big grand gestures or big movements or big celebrities. It, it's about people every day just taking those small actions that make a big difference. And, you know, before you know it, small steps and, you know, you've climbed Everest. So that, that's where I get my uh, my motivation from. So technologies are helping us do more with less. In other words, get more productivity, bring more innovations to market while treading more lightly on the planet. A great example of this is, of course, the humble iPhone, which is one device that is now largely recycled. It's part of the circular economy. And, of course, it's replaced a multitude of pieces of hardware that we would have previously used to gain access to the functionalities and the services of those. So I'm thinking of if we cast our minds back to the 1990s and the Radio Shack ad, for example, you might have thought about a Sony Walkman, a uh, computer system, a VCR, a camcorder, a fax machine, etc., etc., all consuming virgin planetary resources. Now, the functionalities of all of those devices are housed on the one device where we take the cobalt, the lithium, and, of course, the gold, most importantly, back to Apple as we upgrade to the next model. Do you see examples in your business of where technology is sort of decoupling us from planetary constraints to boost productivity or just great examples of human creativity and ingenuity that is enabling us to do more with less? Wow, that's a big question. Undeniably, there's the role that technology can play in in all of this. Um, I think, you know, whether that's the use of um, AI to sort of make more efficient and more effective some of the processes to free people up to be more creative and innovative when it comes to some of these front-end solutions but I think at the heart of it there will always be human beings and humanity and I think with uh you know we we talk about sort of a a just transition when it comes to climate change and moving from fossil-based fuels to renewable energy and I kind of think the same applies in the world of of tech and the way we use it in our organisations for good. We just need to make sure that in applying these, we also apply a really just transition so that we manage um, the human impact and the human dimension of this uh, through the process. But look, we're lucky at Unilever. We have some of the most um, awesome scientists and research and development specialists um, who are always looking at sort of the, the next horizon for how we can do things better in the way we produce our products and whether that's producing products that use less water or move from, you know, black carbon to more blue or green carbons um, in our washing products, for example, or hair care products where you add, you don't need water or, um, you know, food products that... 
are you know very close to the community and close to source so you can almost create a virtual economy there i I think that's always going to play a really important role in any organization Mm. i mean you've touched upon diversity equity and and inclusion and as someone who always thinks about the future and and certainly also the past and rectifying wrongs in the past these aspects are critical things to do as an organization as a leader because a they are the right thing to do now increasingly we're also seeing that they're the profitable and the innovative thing to do so there's research from uh, from bcg that holds that more diverse organizations have created more revenue from new products and innovations new services invented in the last three years than their more homogenous peers. Is that something that you're seeing as well as a leader that this sort of these diverse perspectives, not just about doing the right thing, but it's also the right thing for the business as you innovate moving forward? I mean, for, for sure. I mean, at the, at the most basic level, you want to have an organisation that reflects the population that you're serving, right? So you want to have... Um, uh, a multicultural diversity that's reflective of the the Australian or the New Zealand population because that brings insight into the way that you create products in the way that you market products and the way that you you serve people better than than others are serving people um, I want age diversity in my organization I want the strength of people that have had tenure in the Unilever business and some depth of expertise but I also want some young fresh new objective thinking that sort of power of expertise and beginner's mindset all in the same space um, I want to have diversity of gender for sure. You know, the way men and women look at the world can at times be different and there's incredible value in bringing that diversity together. I also, however, want people around the table that have different points of view, some of which might be very different to my own. You know, when you have a high-performing team, you don't want harmony should not be your objective. In fact, I want to have really dynamic, constructive conflict so that we can have good conversations and make sure that we end up looking at opportunities or challenges from multiple vantage points. You know, I like having a devil's advocate in the room. Um, and when there isn't a natural devil's advocate there, I, I will ask someone to play that role because I do think it's important that we... Um, that we really challenge ourselves and don't end up in a place of confirmation bias, right? We, we of course, are really passionate about the sustainability space, the purpose space, you know, but we ask ourselves one question and that is, is it good for business and is it good for society? If it's good for business but it's not good for society, it's not good enough for Unilever. You need to go back and make it stronger. If it's great for society but it's not good for business, it's also not good enough for us. We need to have the end and and quite often the way you get to delivering that um, that duality with impact is to have really great divergent thinking around the table that helps you to be able to get there. So look, I'm a, I'm a big believer in it. I know it's um it's very popular to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. They're all sort of fancy terms, but at the heart of it for me is about belonging, creating a culture in your organisation where people feel that they belong. Because when someone feels that they belong, then they feel more confident raising 
issues. They feel more confident surfacing creative solutions. They feel more empowered to act autonomously um, without asking for permission. And they feel more safe when at times they have been brave and bold, but not yet quite delivered what was expected, but had some amazing learning off the back of it. So if for no other reason you need it for the culture of an organisation. Some people call it the soft stuff. I actually believe it's the hard stuff that allows you to do all those other things very well. Yeah, so much uh, strategic wisdom there. I think, I think I've heard it said that strategy is uh, what you decide to do as a business and what you decide not to do. And if you can have the strategic foresight to ask, is it good for business? Is it good for society? And if there's a no there, well, it's not the innovation that we're going after. Final question, because we are into the end zone here, Nikki. It's been a fascinating uh, chat so far. Uh, Is there a particular UN sustainable development goal that you are particularly passionate about? And if so, does it provide this sort of creativity within constraints that you see is going to help power the business into the future? They're also inextricably linked, right? The number one, you know, sustainable development goal is around poverty, right? It is about this idea of economic participation. If everyone has the chance to participate economically, then you're able to to create a more inclusive um, society where everybody does have the chance to you know, create their own impact in whatever way that's possible. And it's so closely linked to education, which is number four. And and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a mother with children of my own and I, and I do really believe that every child has um, the right to an education uh, and that that can, can genuinely make a shift in society. And then that's so linked to the goal on climate action. What's that, number 13? Because at the end of the day, we need this planet to be healthy. Um, and there's a bit of a virtuous cycle there. We need the planet to be healthy. We need uh, people to be well-educated. We need to create environments where, you know, you can have a job and economically participate. So, again, it's a little bit the trilogy of those those three in particular that I'm passionate about. But I think they all work so closely together Um that in a way the inconvenient truth of it all is we don't really have the luxury of just focusing on one. Um, we do need people from all walks of life focusing on different parts such that the sum total can be something fairly remarkable. It's been uh, fascinating listening to you, Nikki, and in many ways I think of you as in, in some ways of the encapsulation or the, the personalisation in the work you do at Unilever and certainly your organisation is sort of encapsulating the three P's of people, planet and profit. We had John Elkington on the show a little while back who, of course, coined that term and other terms like the triple bottom line. And it is just so heartening to hear how business is able to combine these things to walk the talk and have such a massive impact. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. And uh, finally, any final words or thoughts as we depart into the virtual ether? You know what? I heard something recently and it really resonated with me. And it was that adults will act their way into a new way of thinking rather than think their way into a new way of acting. And it just 
made me realize you know sometimes as children we're so fearless but as adults and particularly as leaders in this space I think we just have to learn by doing is sort of enough talking about it now I my challenge to everybody listening to this is just find your little way of creating that impact because when everyone does it then actually we will be able to solve some of these big wicked problems together and thank you so much for having me today I really enjoyed talking to you great fantastic thank you for being on the second renaissance Nikki and all the best for the future now if you didn't find Nikki's transformation journey both inspiring and practically transferable into your own innovation efforts I'm not sure what will I took a lot away from this chat with Nikki and I hope it can inform your own innovation strategy as you embark on your own sustainable journey towards prosperity. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.